Well, good morning. It is so good to see each and every one of you here this morning, especially thankful for those who are, uh, who are visiting here with us. We, we want to go this morning back to a book that we started a, uh, a while back. We've been spending a lot of time in the book of Mark. We're about to finish that up. Um, but before we jumped into that and we wrapped up the book of Mark, I wanted to hop back over to 1 Thessalonians and remind ourselves of what we've been studying through there. It's been several weeks back that we started this study of 1 Thessalonians, and we looked at the first chapter, and, and I, I do not have time to go back and, and re-preach those sermons, but just to, to refresh our memories on what we saw in, this, uh, in, in the first part of this book. Um, we understood that Paul, from Acts chapter 17, had left Thessalonica after just a short period with them, maybe as much as three weeks, he spent with them before he was run out of town and had to leave due to the, the great oppression that the Jews were placing upon them there. But sometime later, he sends Timothy and Silas back to check on them. Go back and see what's happening in Thessalonica. And so they go back, and when they are finally able to reunite, reconnect with him, they do so in Corinth, and they bring him good news. The church at Thessalonica is prospering. The church in Thessalonica is growing wonderfully, and Paul immediately writes to them, and he wants to encourage them and let them know that he gives thanks for that growth, but he's also going to address some concerns that he has as well. There's some false teaching going on there that he wants to try and nip in the bud. And so chapter 1, he spends that time noting the great faith of these people, the hope and the love that they have and what that has produced in their lives, primarily labor, work, and patience. But they've also received the word with great joy. Even though they're experiencing these great hardships, this persecution and affliction is going on at this time, he notes that they have received the word and they have turned away from these inferior imaginary gods that they used to worship to the true living God, the Father. And he notes there that they have even been chosen or elected by that great God. And that brings us to chapter 2 where he's going to talk a while about what it looks like to walk as someone chosen by God. And so I want to jump in with the... We're, we're going to look through the whole chapter. It's just 20 verses. But I want to start with verses 1 through 12 and consider what he says there about the preaching of the gospel to them. In verses 1 through 12, he says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain... But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanliness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts." For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is our is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as nursing, a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. For laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. 
You are witnesses in God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul starts off here in, in chapter 2 at reminding them what he spoke in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5, we're going to come back to that thought at the, at the end of this section. But chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about the gospel coming to them. And he's reminding them this is how the gospel came. Number one, it came in suffering. He brings up his former suffering. He had suffered along with Silas, who he refers to here as Silvanus. But this is the one and the same Silas who was with him at Philippi. And if you remember back to Philippi, Acts chapter 16 records they were thrown in prison together for the preaching of the gospel. And ultimately this leads to the conversion of the Philippian jailer. But I want you to remember back to what happened. They were taken by the Jews and, and, and handed over to the authorities there. And in that time they are beaten with many blows. They are beaten with rods. And then they are thrown and shackled by their feet to the inner wall of the prison, the innermost room. They were experiencing great suffering, not just spiritually. That's got to be hard. Emotionally, it's got to be hard. But physically, Paul bears and displays the marks of suffering that he had endured. His body shows what it cost him to bring the message to the world. But yet, how did he preach to them? As he comes to them, his, his back likely riddled with scars from the beating that he has taken. He comes to them not as a scolded child, not with timidity, not with fear. He comes to them with boldness. And it is not a boldness. These men are not bragging. They're not saying, look at our ability. Look at what we... We're not afraid of that. We can take that. He says, no, I came in the boldness of my God. He understood where the power came from. The power of God. The power that God supplies. This is the power of Christ. Is the power of God to save. In Romans chapter 1, he says it's the gospel of Christ. Which is the power of God to save all who believe. And they were presenting that power to a hostile world. It didn't matter what they were facing. What conflict was in front of them. Because they knew what the power was that they were bringing. They knew the message that they spoke were the very words of God to, to change people's lives, to transform pagans to godly people. And so he spoke with that boldness. And he spoke despite their suffering. Despite their suffering, they brought this message and they brought it unchanged. I want you to think about that for just a minute. It's easy to think today it would have been easy to think then. It's easy to still think today that people just won't accept this message. It's too hard. That is too hard a message. God's message on marriage in our culture, that's just too hard. People aren't going to accept that. So we, don't, we better not talk about that because that might turn people off. Or maybe it's too simple. God's message about baptism, that's, just, that's too simple. We talked about spirituality in our, in our Bible class this morning. In fact, there's a lot of things in our Bible class this morning that I feel like it kind of walked around our lesson a little bit. I think they're going to complement each other well. But, but we talked about spirituality. What people say, that's, we got to have these, these, these great things that make for spiritual experiences because what the Bible says about baptism and coming to Christ, that's just too simple. That can't be it. There's got to be more. 
It's like Naaman who said, what, wash in the water of, of the Jordan? That's, that's too simple. I want something that's more spectacular. It's easy for us to think that today. The message is just too hard or it's too simple and it, it won't fit. And we have to make it fit into our culture. But that's not what Paul says. We look again at verse 3. He says, Our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. He's saying there that there's no, there's no falsehood in this teaching. He saw the importance of teaching the truth. And there was something that he was not going to do. He was not going to try to deceive these people. He wasn't going to make up a message that said, I'm, I'm going to scare you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bring all these false dangers up, so, so you need to come. I'm not going to use scare tactics. I'm not going to look for all these ways to make you think, oh, I've got to do something right now because there's just something really bad is going to happen to me. He said, I don't have to do that. And at the same time, I don't have to teach vain teachings of hope. I'm not going to come to you and say, well, everything's just hunky-dory. You, you just believe in God and everything's going to be all right. He said, I'm going to let God do the talking. I'm going to bring the truth. And that truth is going to cover the wrath of God. But that truth is also going to cover the mercies of God as well. He spoke truth to them. And this is the task that God has set before them and all who are going to preach the gospel. He says, and Jesus says in His, in his closing remarks to, to His disciples recorded in the gospel accounts, Go into all the world. Go to every creature and teach them. Preach the gospel, the good news of Christ. Not go into all the world and tell them what you think they want to hear, what you think that they might respond to. He says, go tell them the good news of what God has done through Christ Jesus. And Paul makes another remarkable point here, and that is, you do this not to find pleasure from men. You do this to please God. That is the difference between Paul and many other preachers in this day. In the days of Paul, there were preachers that were doing this very thing, trying to, to cause affliction to Paul so that they might be able to receive fame, they might be able to receive glory. Paul notes these men. He says, that's not what I'm doing. I preach so as to please God. I am preaching to find acceptance from a higher authority than man. And if Paul had not had that attitude, Paul would not have ended up in that prison in Philippi. Paul would not have been saying the things that caused the Jews to want to kill him. Paul would not have been saying the things to cause the Greeks to be stirred up to anger. But Paul was not preaching to please these men. And ultimately, Paul died because of this attitude. It's not about what men think of me. It's about what God thinks of me. And so instead, he spoke the truth. He didn't try to trick them. He didn't try to flatter them. He didn't try to win them over for his own selfish greed. He wasn't seeking his own glory. And he notes, I could have because I'm apostle of Jesus Christ. He had the ability. The, the, he, said that the, he said that the word came in the power of the Spirit. He has the ability to confirm the word that he's speaking through miraculous signs and wonders. And he says, I could have lied upon that and said, look at me. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He came and he spoke to me. You need to listen to me and it's all about me. And he says, that's not my purpose. Because I don't want to bring glory to myself. Instead, I want to preach to gain souls for the kingdom of God. And this is seen in the way that he brought that message. It's very interesting in verses 7 through 12, he aligns them as his spiritual children, but he, most, he, he denotes then that I am like your spiritual father. 
That's how he thinks of them. The way that a father would think of children, he has this same heart towards these disciples in Thessalonica. I want you to think about the language that he used there in verses 7 through 12. He says that they were gentle among them. That they cherished them just as a nursing mother cherishes her children. That they longed for them affectionately. These are the words that Paul uses not just to describe these people. It's the words he uses to describe the work that's going on in Thessalonica. His ministry in Thessalonica. He brought them the gospel. But he says, I also brought you my very life as a minister of the word of God to you. He notes that he was working hard with them, so much so that he was toiling night and day so as not to provide a burden for these people. Now, this was not likely just because they, they couldn't afford it. Thessalonica, if you remember from our earlier studies, was a very rich city. They were a free city. They, they had their own government. They had the right to, to go and make laws for them inside the Roman Empire. This doesn't happen to poor city-states. These were a rich people. So why was he not wanting to be a burden to them? It's very likely it's because of the concept of patronage. No one could ever say from this newly formed uh, church, well, Paul just said that because you paid him more than me. He was saying, I do not want to put any hindrance, any burden in between you and the truth of God. And so what did I do? I didn't take funds from you. I worked day and night to, to support myself and still work and labor in this community. His, his love for them said, I will sacrifice for you all. He sacrificed the way that Romans 12, that he wrote to the Romans in verses 1-2. through 2. He made himself a living sacrifice to prove to the Thessalonians what is the good and perfect will of God. That was his attitude to them. It doesn't matter what it costs me. I want to show you the truth. That's what he's saying. In verse 11, verse 11 is such a beautiful verse to me. Verse 11 reminds me of how a parent cheers on a child in a race or, or in some game. You know, they want to they build them up. And so when they see them doing good, when they, they shoot the basket and, and it goes in, when they're running the race and they're out in front in first place, whatever sport it is they're in, and you're, you're cheering them on because you're so proud of them and you want to encourage them. You're doing good and you keep it up and you don't stop. But then they trip, they stumble. They take that next shot and it rims out. They, something happens and, and, and they've, they've, they've become hurt maybe. They've become a little discouraged. You comfort them at that time. You want to pick them back up and say, don't give up. Keep it up. You're doing good. Remember what the good things you've done. Don't quit. But then you always have that moment. I always had that moment. For me, it was soccer. When the ball's down here and the butterfly's down there. And that's where I am. I'm down here with the butterfly, chasing the butterfly around. Everybody's over here, and mom and dad are on the side of the court screaming, What are you doing? Get back in the game. Don't forget what you're doing. Run, run. Because I needed to be pushed. I needed to be refocused. Paul describes that same mentality here. He is the loving Father that encourages them when they're doing good. He is the loving Father that comforts them whenever they have struggles and hardships. But He will not fail to press them on to the calling that they have received as the church. That word church, we need to remember the Greek word he's using when he says that is ekklesia. The called out. 
And yes, that word is used to just describe people who are called out into an assembly. You know, we're going to come here and gather together. So we were called out of our lives together. But he's using it more in a sense of called out of darkness. Called out of the world into the glories of God's kingdom. And he says, you need to walk worthy of that. And so when you're doing good, I'm going to praise you and, and, and encourage you. And when you're, when you're struggling and when you need help, I'm here to help you. But when you have forgotten what you're doing, I am going to be there to push you on. Get back in the race. Get back to walking worthy of your calling. And what was their calling? He says, you have been called into the kingdom of God. And as he wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.15, you need to walk circumspectly. You need to walk wise because you have received a great calling to walk in the kingdom and the glory of God. He is your king and you walk before your king in such a way that highlights his glory in the world around you. So in this section, Paul is focused back on that message that's at the beginning. He's, going, he's looking back to verse 5 of chapter 1. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. All of verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2 look back to what he just said there in, chapter, in verse 5. But now we're going to get into verses 13 through 16. And in verses 13 through 16, he's going to hinge these thoughts on what he says in verse 6. You became followers of us. And of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. I want you to keep those words in mind as we read these next verses. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. He tells them then that if this is the way the gospel is preached to you, this is the way that you have imitated the gospel. They have received the Word of God as the Word of God. I want you to remember verse 6. He says you all received it with joy of the Holy Spirit. Even though it came to you in hardship, it came to you in affliction and persecution, you didn't turn away from it. You found joy in all of that pain and received the Word of God. But now he says not only did you receive it in joy, you welcomed it with arms wide open, not as the words of man, not as the words of some great philosopher, the opinions of Paul. No, he said, you welcomed it as it truly was the Word of God. Now, there is a phrase that has been tossed around here at Lake Street several times over the past couple of years. A phrase that goes something like this. You shouldn't believe something just because Kyle says it. I feel like I have to say something in regards to that. Because it's been said a bunch. So I feel like I need to say this. Amen. 100%. You should not believe things just because I say it. But we need to make sure. We need to make sure that it's never true for the wrong reason. If I or anybody else is preaching opinion and not backing it up in Scripture... 
Not being able to go to you and say, this, this isn't just what I think. This is what God's Word says. We need to be careful with that. We need to be very careful how we receive those words because opinions don't, aren't always wrong. But we need to be very careful how we judge those opinions and that we are laying them up to the truth of God's Scripture and, and, and comparing them off of that. But when the truth is brought forward, even if it is hard to stomach, I pray that we never have any other attitude than the attitude of the, of the Thessalonians, recognizing this is the Word of God and I will welcome it into my lives. Because you speak to people sometimes. You might even speak to them about the Word of God and, and, and quote it verbatim only to hear them respond, well, that's just your opinion on that thing. Or, well, that's, that's what you say, but that, that's not what my guy says. I, my guy being you know, maybe a preacher or a pastor somewhere or some great philosopher, that's not what he thinks. A televangelist, one I, I used to study with this guy and everything out of my mouth. Well, that's not what Mr. Jimmy, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung says. I don't care what Dr. Jimmy DeYoung says. We're looking at God's Word. He has more authority than this doctor. We need to look and see that it doesn't matter who it's coming from if it's the truth. We can't have this attitude that says, let's just agree to disagree. You, you stand over there on your platform, I'll stand over on mine, and we'll both be right. We can't have that attitude. God's Word is truth. And so let's lean upon that and let's recognize it as the Thessalonians did. They didn't fight back against Paul when he spoke hard things. We're not talking about easy things there. When he went to them and said, those, those idols that you worship are just rocks. They're stupid. They have no abilities. They have no mind. They're, they're, they have no, nothing to them. You made them. Don't follow them anymore. Follow the true God who created the heavens and the earth, who, who through prophecy brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt and turned them into the great nation and ultimately brought the Christ who died and gave His life for you. Look to what He has done and follow Him. And they said, you're right. That's the Word of God and we're going to welcome it and it's going to bring joy in our lives, but we're going to do it. We need to have the same mentality today when it comes to hard things in our lives. We are, when they are brought up, if it is found in Scripture, we welcome it as the Word of God. Of God. But notice he did, says that they didn't just receive it, but they received it and it worked effectively in those who believe. It worked effectively. He's pointed out you received the word with joy, you received it with welcoming, you received it during persecution, and you have imitated it and become examples of it. And we read all this, we think, wow, there was a lot going on in their lives. And Paul points back to where the power again lies. Again, not in his preaching. It's in the power of God to transform. The power of God to change. It's the power of His Word. And it was the Word that effectively worked in them. And it should be no surprise to us. If we read through this and we go, well, I don't have, I don't have any of those things going on in my life. I've not become a great example. I've, I've not, I don't feel like the Word's working in me. It should be no surprise to, the, to us if we are not people of the Word. You see, they heard it. But they did more than hear it. They believed it. And they received it. And then they acted upon it. Think back to verse 3 of chapter 1. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. It was producing something in their lives. It was provoking them to action. They didn't just say, that's a good teaching and I believe He's God and, and, and He's right. They were moved to follow. 
at whatever the cost, sacrificing anything that might cause them to sacrifice to obey Him. And I pray the Word is effective in our lives today and that it's working in us here at Lake Street because of our belief and because of our action. Relying upon it is the true source of divine guidance from God. But how? How does that happen? And how does it become effective? And what does that look like? Paul goes on to say it looks like the imitation of the gospel. It had produced an opportunity in their lives to not just share in the suffering of Christ, but to share in the opportunity to show God's strength and God's glory coming out of them. He begins to note here that they have so taken the word that it has produced the same suffering in them that it produced in others. Now, just a very quick moment. We're going to have to put on our thinking caps. We're going to have to put on our, our first century pagan thinking caps and put ourselves in the mind of a, of a Grecian, a Thessalonican that's standing in the city that day and think how hard would this have been what Paul was talking about. How hard for a Gentile living in Thessalonica. And I want you to think, you're in the city of Thessalonica and you look to the south, you know what you see? You see the towering Mount Olympus. Snow-capped through the year, majestic, magical-looking, and this is the home of the gods of Greece. It's there. I can see it. I know where they live. But you say there's a God that has no home? It's built without hands? It's in our hearts? And, and He has no graven images? I can't go and find a picture of Him anywhere? How hard, how hard would it have been for them to leave that? How hard would it have been? But they did. They had to. And they had turned away from it so hard even though they knew we're accepting persecution to do this. Because by becoming a Christian, they immediately alienated themselves from the Jews, who really probably didn't care for them to begin with, but now really hated them because all of a sudden they're following this blaspheming carpenter from Nazareth in their eyes. And they also alienated themselves from the Greeks. Because what they were saying to the Greeks is all those gods that you think live up there on Mount Olympus, they're imaginary. You made the statues. They're not real. They were hated by everybody how hard a decision it would have been, but they chose to make that decision. They remember the teaching of Paul. And I want us to remember verse one, chapter 1, verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, you, you think about how hard the decision was, but after making the decision, they're being persecuted heavily. So much so that some of these, you know, the house of Jason, he's drug out of his house and he's beat and Paul has to run off and, and things are getting really hard and it would be possible for them to think, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe God hasn't really chosen me at all. Well, Paul wrote to them telling them God has chosen you and now he's writing to them saying, remember what it looked like to be chosen by God in the past. Remember that God chose men to take a message to His people when they were living in sin and prophesy to them that there was going to be condemnation come if they didn't change and that they were going to one day there was going to be hope that God is not going to forever uh, be judging them to, to just destruction because He's made a promise that He's going to fulfill. But you need to repent. You need to change and turn back to God. He called these men the prophets. And He said, you remember what they did to them? You remember what happened to the people God chose? The prophets? Yeah, they were killed. And what about the man that He chose? His very son 
to come and live and represent Him and on this earth, to be the, the ambassador of God for all the world and to give His life. You remember what happened to Him? Yeah, they killed Him too. And who's doing this, by the way? The very people that God chose to be the vehicle of His righteousness and of His glory, the Israelites. He's like, look, being chosen by God doesn't indicate whether you are, are going to suffer or not. In fact, if you are suffering, that's actually a good indicator that maybe you have been chosen by God. Now, we don't want to get back into that too much. We, we talked about that in verse 4. How did, God, how did Paul know they had been chosen, they had been elected? Because they had heard the word and they had received it and they had put it to action. But now, and maybe they were questioning that, like maybe we've made a mistake. He's saying, look, this is how it has been since the beginning of time. This is how it happens for those who choose to follow God, to walk with Him, to accept His calling. You face suffering. And your suffering is an indicator that you're walking worthy of that calling of His kingdom and His glory. And so what should they do with that? If this is what's happening and it's what's supposed to happen, we're supposed to be suffering, we're supposed to be persecuted, what are we supposed to hope in then? Where is our silver lining? Verses 17 through 20, he talks about that. He says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. He's saying, Here's what you need to do you need to hope in the gospel. Another way of saying that is to hope in the good news of one another in the presence of the Lord at His coming. Because Paul, Paul wanted to be with Christ. Paul questions the benefit of staying in this life versus just going ahead and dying and being with Christ. And he recognizes there's value for, for being here. There's value in being with Christ. That's what I'm really longing for. But what's he saying here? He's saying it's not just being in Christ. It's being with Christ with you. You all coming with me. Paul's saying, I don't want to be there by myself. I want to fill the halls of, kingdom, of the kingdom with as many people as possible. And so his hope is found in one another at the presence of the Lord at His coming. Now he does mention some things here that I don't fully understand. He mentions that Satan had somehow how hindered him in actually seeing them physically in this life. And it's possible that refers to the Jews. The Jews were a huge instrument of Satan to try and stop the spread of the gospel. As he says, they forbid them to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved. It's very likely that that's what he's talking about here. But there is just this simple statement. The simple statement is, the truth that we're told is, I wanted to come to you, Satan hindered it. Time and space was separating Paul from the Thessalonians, but his heart was constantly on these suffering examples of faith. He longed to be with them personally. He longed to be with them eternally. And now technically, technically we probably, we should probably lump verses 17 through 20 in with chapter 3. Because he's going to continue that thought. And when we get into chapter 3, we'll probably have to go back and talk about that for a minute. But I wanted to stop here. I wanted to take this break to see a few conclusions that come up from what we've just read. There are three things in my mind. 
three things in my mind that we should take away from this chapter. And I'm aware that there are about a million more that we could. But there's three things that stand out to me that I wanted to summarize. And I would summarize them as this. Being presenters of God's gospel, being people who show the gospel of God in our lives to others, through our words, through our actions, that demands a high esteem for the lost and a high esteem for God. We are never going to be able to help people, bringing them to receive the word as these Christians had received it if we don't have a similar love for them as Paul did. Do we look at the lost? Do we look at those who have never heard of God? Do we look at those who think, I'm saved because they believed deceit, they believed error? Do we look at those who will even fight back against the truth the way that Paul looked at the Thessalonians? Do we look at them and desire to be gentle? Do we look at them and desire to love them like our own children? Do we long for them with affection that they would be with us? And are we willing to give them not just the gospel, but our very lives to not be a burden to them, to try and show them the truth? If the answer to those questions is no, that's not what I'm willing to do, then we shouldn't expect to see those people change. At least not the way the Thessalonians did. We need to follow Paul's example. We need to preach the truth and we need to preach it in season and out of season. We need to preach it when it's, when it's acceptable and when it's not acceptable. And we need to preach it the way that it was intended to be preached in truth and in the boldness of God. And we need to preach it in our labor, in the work that we do every day. We need to preach it in our hope, where our attitudes lie. When people come to you and say, why do you have hope through these experiences? That's a door to open up the gospel to them. We need to preach it in our faith. We need to show people over and over again the love that we have for them and the love that we have for God. And being imitators of God's Word also demands that we recognize its authority in our lives. Too often mankind has had the attitude, almost thou persuadest me. Almost you have convinced me to become a Christian. Too often times we have that attitude that there's still something standing between myself and God. Some sin, some decision that I'm refusing to make. Something that still indicates, first, I serve myself. Then I serve God. And if this is true, we're not responding to His Word with joy of spirit. We're not welcoming it as the Word of God. And we should not expect to find it effectively working in us until we believe enough to give our lives fully to it. But third, I want us to think about this. Being given to telling others about Jesus, being given to imitating Christ in our lives, needs to lead to this realization. There is nothing better than being with the saints in the glorious presence of Christ Jesus at His return. That's where our hope lies. That's where our joy lies. Now, Satan hindered Paul from physically being with the Thessalonians. And I don't have a clue what that looked like, but I know it happened. But I have to wonder, I have to wonder, if Paul could come back, what would he say about the way Satan hinders us today from being with our brethren? I wanted to be there, but my favorite show was on the television. I want you to know right now, Satan's hindering that. Satan is behind that. But is that what was stopping Paul that just... There's something that I liked better. 
some discomfort is in my life. And so I, I'm not going to be able, it's just it's going to be a lot more comfortable for me not to be there today. Uh, some choice that's coming up. I'd, I'd just rather choose to do this than do that. Now, we, we talked the other day, we talked the other day about, about giving God our best. And I recognize there are times, just like there are times in Paul's life, where Satan hindered him from being with the saints. There was nothing he could do. He said, I wanted to be there. I tried to be there. But all too often, Satan doesn't have to try nearly that hard for us. All he has to do is get us to choose. I'd rather be somewhere else than with the saints. And now that's true for our assemblies here. That is true for our assemblies here. But that is also true for the assemblies that go on around us as well. There are sound bodies of Christ. Churches, congregations of people who belong to Christ, who have been buried into Him and have received His Word as the Word of God and are allowing that to dictate their decisions. They're all around us. In fact, this afternoon, we're going to be praying for many of them in our prayer service. Do we have a desire to see them in the presence of Jesus at His return? If that's true, and I hope it's true, how often do we tell them? How often do we show them? There are a host of gospel meetings on the back bulletin board. I hope that we look at those and think, if I have an opportunity to be with my brethren, that's where I want to be. Because it brings, up, it brings up the question that we talked about this morning in class. Why do we gather together? Why are we here? If, if for you, I'll tell you, for me, Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25 is not the reason that I gather together. If we were to cut that verse, if it was never in the Bible... That doesn't dictate the reason we gather together. Now, 100%, I'm not saying that that verse needs to be cut out of the Bible. That verse is authoritative. It is, it is power. But why do I gather with you all? Why do I seek to gather with other saints? It's not because the Bible says we need to not forsake the assemblies. And it's also, it's also not because I think I'm going to get some special reward in heaven not going to show up on Judgment Day and beside my name in the Book of Life, a little, oh, you got this achievement. You unlock the achievement of perfect attendance. You get a bigger mansion in heaven. No. For me, it's because I love God. For me, it's because I love you. And I need you. I need each and every one of you. And I want to help you, but I also want your help. I want to be the family that Paul is describing here that loves seeing one another, that loves worshiping with one another, and that prays and longs for the day when we will be gathered together in the presence of Christ at His return, when the kingdom is handed over to God and we walk into eternity, our promised land, to live forever in the presence of the Lord. That's the walk of the chosen of God. That's the worthy walk of the chosen of God. To one day walk following Christ, being led by Him, being carried by His blood and His sacrifice and His righteousness into the eternal kingdom of the Father. And maybe today you want to be a part of that family too. You want to walk with your brethren in the kingdom of God. You want to be transformed by the power of His mercies through the gospel of His Son. That's what we want to. That's what the church at Lake Street wants to. And we want to help you come to the gospel. And we want to help you receive it. And we want to help you imitate it. But if having already made that decision, that you realize you've, you've walked less worthy in the past, 
You've chosen other things over God. You've chosen another life over the life that He's called you to live. We want to help with that too. If you are ready to, to turn away, to repent of that, and to turn away from destruction and turn towards everlasting life, it is our desire, our hope to stand with you. If only you would let that be known. If we can help you in some way, assist you in that, won't you please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.